With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Hello and welcome to the Autosport Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Kalanorkas. It may be hard to believe given the 2020 Formula One season started just a month and a half ago, but we're now six races into the campaign after today's Spanish Grand Prix. It was another scorching day at the Barcelona track, but a bit like the rain clouds that loomed large and at one point in the race rather darkened the pictures of the cars on track, the expected close battle between Red Bull and Mercedes failed to materialise. In fact, the story of today's race is really all about one driver, Lewis Hamilton, who dominated from pole position to pick up his 88th F1 career win and move to 37 points clear at the head of the championship. Hamilton was tracked early on by Max Verstappen, whose pace on the medium tyre in Friday practice had somewhat spooked Mercedes and suggested he would be able to take the fight to the black cars in the race, but as the opening stint wore on, it became clear he couldn't live with Hamilton's pace. After a period of tyre management and generally tootling around to see how the soft C3 Pirelli tyre was performing, Hamilton turned the screw. After a series of fastest laps following the 10 lap mark, he was over four seconds clear, a gap that became over seven by the time he pitted. Verstappen had already come in at this point and the undercut, allied to a slow left rear wheel change on Hamilton's car, meant that Red Bull was again four seconds behind as the second stint began. In pretty much identical circumstances, Verstappen matched Hamilton early on in the mediums before falling back as Hamilton raced clear. The world champion was surprised by how well the softs had lasted and that the Red Bull didn't have the pace as Mercedes had expected. From there, it was simple for Hamilton, who negotiated a second stop for mediums after a bit of firm decision making on sticking with that compound when Mercedes had looked to put him on the softs, and he roared clear to win by 24.7. No. And he roared clear to win by 24 seconds. He was so in what he later called a perfect zone that he dreams of finding that he didn't realise he was taking the chequered flag. Verstappen had realised midway through the first stint that this race was all about keeping Valtteri Bottas at bay in the second Mercedes after Bottas had been sandwiched by Verstappen and racing points last stroll at the first corner and fallen from second on the grid to fourth. Bottas battled back to third but he couldn't do anything about Verstappen and eventually finished well adrift after taking an extra third stop to secure the fastest lap. He later said he can see the championship drifting away again. Elsewhere there was more radio messaging fury at Ferrari and an electrical drama that stopped and spun Charles Leclerc. Two drivers were penalised as part of the FIA's drive to clamp down on blue flags being ignored and there was a bit more wild Roman Grosjean defending. So joining me this evening to discuss all of that and more are Autosports F1 reporter Luke Smith and Autosports technical editor Jake Boxall-Legg and returning to the Autosport podcast after a weekend off last week is GP Racing executive editor Stuart Codling. I'd like to start with you. First off, uh, let's start with the reason why you were absent last weekend. There was a certain important wedding anniversary that you were off celebrating. 
Yes, not mine, but my parents, their diamond uh, wedding celebration, which um, the, the actual anniversary is next month. But back when this whole shindig was booked in January, the world was a slightly more normal place. And this last weekend was the, the only weekend where I would have been not at a Grand Prix. We ended up having to have this weird, awkward, um, trying to not cross bubbles affair with people who'd flown over from Italy in this uh, hotel, which rather resembled faulty towers in all respects. And uh, on the Saturday night, we were uh, roused from our beds by the sound of a fight in the bar below. The police were called to... Um, break it up so uh, very very weird well we're stuck with you now on this podcast so let's get back to formula one uh let's start as we probably should with the start of the race uh luke what happened to, to valtteri bottas uh he got sandwiched to to quote the finn himself he said on saturday that his best chance to really get ahead of lewis hamilton would lie at the start given the uh nature of the circuit to catalonia barcelona very very hard to overtake so he really wanted to sort of uh, gun in early and try and get ahead on that long run down to turn one one of the longest of the season and uh, that just didn't happen at all uh, he struggled to get a toe max verstappen was able to get nicely into lewis hamilton's toe and that got him uh, ahead of bottas and then lance stroll came out of nowhere with a, a really really good start and um, very impressive uh, getaway from the racing point driver and uh, yeah that allowed him to sort of muscle himself alongside bottas and, and get ahead into third place and and uh, that resigned Bottas to fourth, and that really put paid to any hope he had of winning this race or even a top two finish in the end. So I think that really uh, set the tone for his race, and uh, that gave free reign to Lewis Hamilton at the front to really lay the foundations for his Grand Prix victory. It certainly did. Well, Jake, how did you find covering the start of the race for Autosport.com's live blog? I know that's something you relish doing every weekend. So yeah, were you were you particularly effusive and positive about Lance Stroll? I, I don't know. I was, I was busy concentrating on uh, various uh, lap charts and leaderboards. I'm afraid I wasn't reading uh, your fine prose, but there we go. Well, what did you make of it? I thought it was uh, it, it was incredibly good. Um, at the start of the race, our editor, Hayden Cobb, who was on uh, live with me, had to duck out and sub a MotoGP report. So I was in charge of everything on live because we, we split it between us. And I was like, okay, right, please be... I, I thought it, chances were that it was going to be an absolutely manic start and I was going to have to be writing about everyone and everything. Um, luckily, it was sort of like quite a quite a clean start but it was a, a very very good start from Lance Stroll uh, just out of the blocks off the third row stole past Perez stole past Bottas probably could have had a tilt at Verstappen as well but probably a little bit too far back and then Bottas as well checked up in the middle of the corner and that almost uh, forced Alex Albon into the back of him and luckily they were able to avoid any kind of incident there so good start to the race for Stroll um, he's very very good at making starts off the line he's a lot better than perhaps people give him credit for in that regard we've seen a lot from him in the past few years of him being very good at the start but very often it goes a little bit unnoticed because for his first season or two he was in shall we say lesser machinery at the back of the grid or he he wasn't doing the job in qualifying so so he he's generally been quite a star on opening laps you just he's just not necessarily someone who's picked up on on the replays because they're focusing at the front of the grid so it's it's actually been quite nice to, to to sort of see uh, his his excellence at a race start be be shown because I think it's one of his his strongest suits and he doesn't want for bravery does he I mean he's stuck a front wheel on the grass uh, territory only explored uh, by uh, Esteban Ocon later in the race passing uh, Kimi Raikkonen I think Hamilton was just there was obviously a bit of concern at Mercedes about what was going to happen with the tyres given what we saw last weekend and he said later on there we just sort of just sort of expect, you know, just sort of seeing what to expect with the softs, and it, in fact, what actually happened surprised them. Hamilton, uh, in both the official FIA press conference and the own the the, the extra session organised by Mercedes, was playing his cars pretty close to his chest. I thought about what he was doing in the car. He's sort of like, oh yeah, possibly I did something a bit different compared to last weekend, and yeah, the team doesn't really understand why we were able to to make the softs last. But that's what was key because once they'd got to the point, as I said about lap ten, Hamilton just just dropped it in a way that Verstappen couldn't. So, Codders, what did you make of the opening phase? It's always a little bit frustrating when you see tyre management going on and when you have the person in second place being told to slow down because they're getting too close to the person in first place and them saying, well, you know, it's because he's uh, driving too slowly. You kind of think, oh, well, it's going to be it's going to be like that, is it? But just listening to Toto after the race, he was saying that um, 
you know, they've they've moved mountains in the background over the past week to work out where they were, uh, where they fell short in in high temperatures. And he said that basically the work started on Sunday night after the the second Silverstone race to to try and find ways around their their weaknesses in in hot temperatures, and 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 this this result bore that out. They were just very careful, Lewis played the race like a piano didn't he just just from the off and I, I don't know when he entered his senna-esque fugue state and made his appointment with god but um you know he he could quite easily have gone and you know got baptized or something for a second time and come back and still won the race couldn't he well as interesting he 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 had that he was asked whether you know to compare it to the sort of the senate it's the senate at monaco in 1988 whether you know, he had a sort of out-of-body experience. You know, did he compare to what Senna said? And he he said, no, no, it was, it was totally different. But what he's talking about is he was just in the zone. He was in that. It's what lots of sports people talk about, finding form, just finding that purple patch where you're sort of untouchable. You see it in you see it in cyclists, in football players, in, in cricket players. You know, when you're on, you know, in cricket, like suddenly you can see a ball moving like a beach ball and, you know, you can just hit it for four every time. It's that sort of, I, I'm not going to do anything wrong today. And I think I think that's pretty pretty much sums up Lewis Hamilton's drive. You know, he just looked like whenever he needed to, he had something in reserve, and he was just so focused. And and uh, and and yeah, a, a fine performance from Hamilton. Said it was one of his one of his best in in his career, coming towards the end of his uh, second stint, where Mercedes had sort of suggested he was going to go onto the softs, and he very firmly rebuffed that. So, Luke, what does that what does that tell us about Lewis Hamilton and, and the way he's thinking? And also, it was interesting hearing Toto Wolff say, "Well, actually, you know, it just shows you the good communication." that he's got with his engineer yeah definitely um so yeah towards the end of the race he was uh planning to come in for the second time and they were planning to put him onto the soft tire because they managed to extend that medium stint out a little bit longer uh, to match up with what Valtteri Bottas was doing and uh Lewis basically responded to Pete Bonington his engineer and said no he said what why risk it why do we want to go for softs when I've got a perfectly good set of mediums um and after a couple of laps Mercedes were like okay brought him in put him on mediums and he was obviously fine to the end of the race and then at the end um there was quite a nice clip on the the world feed that uh Total Wolf went over to Christian Horner to sort of just talk about the race basically um all privately but the world feed camera and microphones picked it up and um Horner asked about it and, and Toto said that basically the soft tyres just weren't giving the kind of performance that the mediums were. So in the end, like the mediums were absolutely the best tyre to have been on. And I think that it also just did show the relationship that Lewis has with the team and just how transparent and strong they all are really and as I'm sure we'll get onto later I think it is a, a stark contrast to what we see at Ferrari where there is real sort of confusion and I think a bit of uncertainty between the driver and the pit wall in Sebastian Vettel's case whereas here I think Mercedes they learned from a couple of races ago where they had a similar kind of thing in terms of talking about with, with Hamilton what are we going to do with tyres and they just completely trusted him that ultimately he was very confident and comfortable at the front of the pack he felt there wasn't any reason going on to softs the mediums would see him home fine and they put their faith in him for that and I think that just shows just the the quality he has and also just how strong that relationship is between the two which I guess isn't surprising given all the success they've had together but it's always nice to sort of see Total Wolf says he said sometimes you got it where sort of drivers run the team or the teams run the drivers and he said it's not like that at all at Mercedes it's a two-way street and I think that is uh, that's really important to have and has been so important to all of their success. Indeed, indeed. Well, important to success today was getting the tyres uh, working as perfectly as possible, which we think Hamilton pretty much managed. Um, but Jake, what did you what did you make of what went on again with the tyres? Obviously, went back a step harder to what we saw at the British Grand Prix, the C1, C2, C3 tyres. Uh, the C1s, basically after practice, nobody wanted to touch. So it was quite a surprise to see Red Bull put Alex Albon on that at his first stop. Um, didn't seem to do him too much harm, but no one else wanted to go anywhere near it. And as, as, you, as Luke said, you know, the, the media the C2 really was the best race tyre but I think the most interesting aspect of what we saw was how well the soft tyre performed everybody went much longer than they looked like they would do in practice and in fact that's what Hamilton felt was sort of the the key to his race was the fact that he was able to to to, to, you know push on as he got to the sort of certain point in the first stint Verstappen basically just went yeah that's it he's gone I asked him about that in the press conference and he said that was the point he realised the race was lost so what was what was particularly what was the particular challenge about the soft tyres today? Well, I think when you compare it to a week ago, um, 
you, you, at Silverstone, it, you, you require less downforce overall because it's, it's a faster circuit. And Barcelona, it's a lot more of a technical circuit. You require a lot more high downforce. And I saw the the sort of difference between everybody because they're all running high downforce packages is, is less than compared to what we saw last week when Mercedes had bolted on a high downforce setup and Red Bull had gone a little bit lower and was able to sort of keep the life in the tyres. But I also think that, yeah, it's just the the general qualities of the circuit. It's not as painful on the tyres as perhaps Silverstone is, even though the track temperature overall during the race was, uh, you know, a couple of degrees hotter. Uh, it, it didn't seem to have too much of an effect. And so those drivers were able to eke out the soft tyre. Um, and as I said to Luke on the Friday podcast, so I'm tooting my own horn a little bit here, but I said, you know, it might be a bit of a wild card to see the odd one-stop strategy. But a couple of drivers made it work. Um, and the vital part was keeping the life in the softs for 20, 25 laps and then maybe jumping onto the mediums or doing a double stunt on softs before mediums, which is what a couple of drivers did. Um, and those were on used softs as well. So they already had a heat cycle and a qualifying lap through them. So I, I think a lot of the teams have learned a lot from the last weekend they've seen the mistakes that they've made on the silverstone circuit uh in the heat and have gone okay we can't do that again it's interesting to also uh you know look at the pressures as well the tire pressures were considerably down on the last two weekends as well so i think these were all contributing factors to the fact that you know we've we had a very different race compared to last weekend Cudders, just coming back to, again, we, we touched on this briefly with Lewis about his radio message to his engineer. It was Max Verstappen that was uh, was sort of in the in the news at the beginning of the race because of the way he was discussing things in Red Bull. It was some, some sort of vocal frustration you could hear. And he actually, his engineer was not snapping back at him, but was was having to be quite firm with him to, to get his head down and, and to concentrate. Um, but yeah, what did you what did you make of that that stage? What did that reveal about Max Verstappen and what he thought was going on? It certainly felt that it was frustration talking, and that maybe it the 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 impression I got was that their expectations about how the race would pan out were not being met. So having you know caught Mercedes by surprise uh, last weekend with strategy and and with tire choice and everything, um, he he sort of felt that. Red Bull profited by going their own way and being confident in their own decisions and kind of not worrying about what the other people were doing. So he, I think he, he was sort of obviously getting frustrated with his car's tyre performance or the, or the way it was working those soft tyres over the, the opening stint. He felt that the car wasn't really working with them very well, so he wanted to get off them as soon as possible. Um, and whenever he complained that um, he was struggling, he was just getting feedback saying, well, you know, Lewis is doing this, Valtteri is doing that, so do this. And and you can understand why you eventually say, look, you know, I, I don't care what they're doing. Uh, let's do what suits our car and, and do our own thing. So I, I can fully understand why he slightly chafed. Uh, and, um, you know, you can equally understand why his race engineer said, you know, just, just keep your head down and, and do your job. Indeed, indeed. And he did do a very fine job. You know, everybody up to Valtteri Bottas in third place was lapped. And we know how good that Mercedes is. It's a second clearing qualifying. It's clearly the class of the field. The Red Bull is a slower car. And yet the other driver in Alex Albon isn't able to get anywhere near what Verstappen's doing. And Verstappen is the only driver, it seems, that can put any sort of pressure on Mercedes. So Luke, again, what did you make of Verstappen's overall drive today and and the the way, yeah, he sort of took the fight to Mercedes where he could? I thought it was excellent again, and uh, as I'm sure you'll probably dig into in your much controversial driver ratings uh, tomorrow and, th- and through next week, I think Max is just, he's doing everything he can right now, and he said that he's really, he is very satisfied with the results he's getting, even if he's not winning, and even if he's not realistically going to be fighting for this world championship, to be able to split the Mercedes in a car that really is third at best, I mean, that that just speaks volumes about what he's doing, I mean, that that's five podiums in a row for him now. The only race where he's not on the podium this year was the first race in Austria where he had his issue that meant he retired, but he was looking good sort of being that sort of top three, top two fight. So I think it's just like you just got to give enormous credit for the job he's doing right now. And he, he is outstripping that Red Bull car week in, week out. And I mean, at points he was sort of lurking behind Alex Albon on track, um, getting ready to lap him just before they both came in for their, their second stops. And it's just like, I know that Max Verstappen to have him as a yardstick is very difficult for any driver and any teammate 
but also to be to be that far ahead is just incredible. So yeah, I think massive credit needs to be given to Verstappen for the job he's doing right now. Although it was another excellent display by him. He may not be on in the same league as um, the Mercedes are, but. I mean, Christian Horner said after the race that there's really not much in it between Hamilton and Verstappen in terms of who's the best pound-for-pound out-and-out driver right now. And I'd be inclined to agree with that because Hamilton is fantastic. But the job Max is doing is just superb. I kind of thought that Alex Albon didn't have the weekend that maybe he... Maybe you shouldn't talk about a driver deserving a certain result, but... He did qualify a lot better this weekend, and I just felt that the decision to put him on the hard tyres, uh, which was completely experimental, uh, it was a compound that other people had tried and thought just, you know, you know, don't even touch this. So to put him on that in the race, un- untested, I just felt that they gave him a lot of work to do, and to his credit, he did that work, and... Although he he finished behind where he started, uh, he he had to work very hard to to achieve that result. So I think we sh- we should give um, Alex Albon a, a little bit of credit for having made the best of what was not the best strategic choice for him. And I kind of uh, at the time I wrote down in my in in my notes that are, are they using him as a sort of like a little bit of an outlier to see if they might put Max on them so they're basically using him as a mobile test bed which not hugely fair but obviously it's a team that's very much focused around one driver yeah, i made the the same note basically was this an experiment on the horse to see if it would benefit verstappen indeed god has raises uh, no doubt one of uh, you know his, his enormous glass of wine that the listeners will, will can be uh, letting to hear and that he's enjoying during this podcast what kind of wine it's is it it's not that big the glass itself um, is massive well, it's, it's, it's the camera angle that does Force that. Perspective. It's an Argentine Malbec. And how, and how is it? It's rather nice, actually. It's very as good. good as, as good we as got that. It from Lathwaite's. I see. As good as that Malbec we enjoyed uh, during our Formula E trip to Punta del Este in Uruguay, Codders? Oh, I don't think. And it, 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 in, in the words of Prince vocalising through various vocalists down the years, nothing compares to that. Indeed. So, Jake, let's... Was that a Heathrow moment? Oh, yeah. No, I had no idea what you're on about. Absolutely not. Valtteri Bottas, he can see the championship slipping away again. He's, he's right, isn't he? He's 43 points behind now. He says, you know, the only weekend that's gone right is the is the race that he won, the season opener, the Austrian Grand Prix, where it was Hamilton that had the off weekend. But again, another, another bad one for Bottas because basically he's undone by the start. Yeah, I think it's very much a case of you kind of you make your own luck a little bit in in F one. When you've got a car that that that's that good, um, you you've got to make the most of it. And sure, at first uh, Silverstone race that's that was unlucky, sure. But Bottas has matched, if not beaten, Hamilton in qualifying this year. Uh, they have they have been within tenths. Uh, in at the end of Q3 so they're very very evenly matched on that degree of pace but when it comes to races it just Bottas just either has a bad start or he just falls back or the he's compromised or something like that and I think a lot of it is partially down to you know perhaps getting a little bit too eager on the on the clutch at the start of the race um he had that uh that weird start a couple of rounds ago um, this time he got bogged down. It was like the first phase of the start was quite good, um, but then it got to that second phase, and suddenly everybody's swamping him, and uh, his car positioning wasn't particularly um, particularly brilliant in that first couple of corners. Uh, it, I know it's difficult in Spain, especially offline; it's very very dirty. But um, he just gets he gets himself into these scrapes. Um, and so I think his assessment is right. It's slipping away, and this happens every year. Bottas comes out of the blocks. He does so, so well. Um, and then as Hamilton starts to pick up, Bottas's energy kind of seems to be sapped. Um, and over the course of the season, he just doesn't have the legs for it. Um, and, you know, we talked about Bottas 2.0 and Bottas 3.0, but at the end of the day, it's still Bottas 1.0. Um He's just he's falling into like a, a perpetual cycle of start well, but he doesn't start as he means to go on. Uh, unfortunately, so I find that such a frustrating thing when he's asked about Bottas 3.0. It's like it's getting a more original question. 
a problem that has been uh, thrown up a lot this weekend, but uh, we, shall, we shall gloss over that. Um, Codders, what did you make of Bottas today and, and how, tough is the, how tough is the mountain he's got to climb now? Well, he's making it difficult for himself, isn't he? And the, the thing that struck me was um, the amount of radio traffic. When you listen to the, the, you know, the pit lane channel and, and you listen to a lot of the radio traffic that's going on between pit wall and driver, an, an awful lot of coaching going on between him uh, and, and, and the pit wall and then telling him what to do, whereas when you when you list you, you compare that with the dialogue between Lewis and the pit wall, and it's Lewis laying down the law to them and saying, "Well, actually, no, I'm not going to take the the soft tire at this point because I I don't think that's the right thing to do. So think again, sharpen your pencils. Uh, this is not going to happen." And and Valtteri sort of kind of lets the pit wall dictate. He, he sort of. Maybe it's the way he drives. He just sort of thinks, well, you know, I'll I'll drive the car. That's my job. You dictate strategy. That's your job. But when you look at all the more complete drivers over the past few years, the Lewis Hamiltons, the Fernando Alonso's, etc., there are people who play a proactive part in the race strategy and push back if they think that the people on the pit wall uh, are not giving them the right information or not, or not telling them the right things. So, yeah, for me, the the whole business of pratting around right at the end to try and pull a fastest lap out of the bag um, didn't even add up to me because Valtteri was able to set the fastest lap of the race on his soft tyres and then came into the pits uh, for a set of medium tyres and okay so he went faster still but there's an element of what's the point and you you introduce an element of risk uh, by going into the pits And, and I asked Toto Wolf about that in the post-race press conference and he said well there was no risk I thought well you know this Toto is clearly twaddle because whenever you bring a driver into the pits um, the you, you introduce an element of risk and, and so he, he basically didn't answer the question so it just felt like they were just messing around with with Valtteri like they'd given up on any hope of him uh, catching and passing Max and just thought well, well we'll just sort of salvage another point and see how it goes indeed I asked Bottas you know was he surprised not to have at least got closer to Verstappen and maybe even had another go once they'd got back onto the same you know back onto the same tyres after the first pit stop because his point was that after getting back past Lance Stroll and having to you know fight to catch up he'd taken a bit more tyre life out of his softs and his his point was like well the gap's so close I just didn't have you know a big enough Delta in terms of, you know, he's going to have to be going one and a half seconds quicker to make an overtake stick, which does add up. It's a tough place to pass at Barcelona. But again, it was just a, it was just a, a subpar performance from, from Bottas in what is clearly the, the quickest car of the field. Um, but just before we move on to discuss um, the battle behind the, the, the race to the win, Luke, I wanted to ask you what you thought of something that Hamilton said in his, uh, his press session where I'd asked him, you know, what was the, what was the key during the, the you know, the, the, to making the soft tyre last because he said he was shocked by that didn't expect it he was again like I said not giving a lot away but then he went into he went into a bit more detail on sort of saying that he wants to keep pressure on Pirelli and that the the tyres they've got to bring now for 2022 have got to be better and you know he I, I noticed he does has do, does do this on occasion in the past but something that really struck me about what he said was that it, they need to be safer effectively was what he was going at and I wondered did you think that he's thinking back to what happened at Silverstone where the tyre just gave up on him and maybe I wonder this is something that went through my head was that that was perhaps one of the reasons why he didn't go want to go onto the softs at the end because he just considered it that little bit more more risky certainly yeah I think that obviously if you're that far in front and you're leading the race and you're fighting for world championship any element of risk you can remove you absolutely will and uh, yeah I think he I think that will be weighing heavy on his mind because I think he'll know that although he remarkably won that race on three wheels he by all rights, should not have won that race. Like, if that had happened a couple of corners earlier, then he, he'd have lost. And that would have been a huge blow for him and, and for his title hopes. And I think we saw with Bottas, like, he went from a comfortable second to 11th in that race because of the issues. So I think that that will have been on his mind, I think. And I think that it is sort of just this warning to Pirelli that... And, and Silverstone, I mean, that event has already had an impact. Pirelli have already said they're going to sort of, like, look at things with their tyres. The FIA have said they're going to um, cut downforce levels for next year to kind of peg it back to sort of where we were at the start of this year basically because ultimately those tyres like they they should not be failing like it should be that you are able to as we saw at Silverstone last weekend have the confidence that we're going to bring a softer set of compounds and it'll all work fine and like thank god it did but 
it just yeah, the, the tires just should not be failing. And I know that Hamilton is absolutely not alone in wanting Pirelli to be able to produce a tire that they don't have that kind of concern and that risk on. And I know we've always had the debate about, okay, should we have tyres that are either degrading a lot and therefore you can have lots of pit stops or should we have like longer lasting ones that allow them to really push and get the most out of it? And I think that is a sort of very sort of happy medium and a compromise to be struck. But also they should be safe. Like they should not think like, oh, I'm going to do... I think Lewis would have had like a 15 or 16 lap stint max to do for that that final run to the flag and not worry that, okay, I'm going on to the softest compound. Will it actually hold up all the way to the end? Like that's just, it's just not a worry they should have. So yeah, I think it's good that he's sending that message to Pirelli because I think that the Silverstone experience, he got away with it, but he absolutely will not um, rest on his laurels and sort of see that as a, oh, that was lucky. Like he, he will continue to push and ask for things to be better as promised we're going to move on from the fight for the win and uh, jake i want to ask you about racing point fourth and fifth stroll eventually ahead of perez in the results because as we'll come on to he perez picked up a penalty um, but again this was uh this was this was racing point doing exactly what that car is capable of it's it's not quite quick enough to trouble the podium places in a in a normal race where the front runners don't hit trouble but it's exactly where it is in that sort of third fastest car bracket and and, and, and as opposed to last weekend where uh nico hulkenberg was undone by a severe tire vibration things went quite smoothly all to the end so what did you make of uh, of the team's result today well, it's their best result of the season, isn't it? Fourth and fifth. They're finally doing what, you know, they're supposed to be doing with that car. Um, and what they what was most interesting about that the race was that they'd split strategies between Stroll and Perez. So um, Stroll did quite a lengthy stint on the, the soft tyre at the start. Um, then he'd switched the mediums, only did 15 laps on it, and then he went back to another U set of softs. And he managed to keep the life in them so, so well. And I think... His drive today should be really commended because he did an absolutely fantastic job at the start. He did that fantastic job with his tyre management. Um, and then at the end of the race, when Perez had his penalty, Stroll was like, okay, presumably he was told that Perez had the penalty and he managed to catch up to him so that, you know, he was within three seconds at the line uh, and picked up fourth place for his efforts, which is a phenomenal result. Um, Perez, however, despite penalty, he managed to, he, he nearly executed that one stop perfectly if it hadn't been for that penalty um i i i i kind of accept that you know it is a bit touch and go uh, i i appreciate that the fia are trying to sort of lay down the law on this one so any leniency can't really be shown maybe a little bit unlucky to get that uh hamilton did whiz past pretty quickly but yeah he he really sort of kept the life in those soft tires towards the end and you know they both did a phenomenal job, so both hats off to both of them. Michael Massey, the race director, he was asked after the race about uh, about the penalties given to both Perez and to uh, Daniel Kvyat, who received uh, also a five-second penalty for failing to uh, adhere to blue flags. And uh, he said that it was a part of a crackdown that apparently has been planned uh, following talks with the drivers about blue flags and, and people following them. So after the opening race in Austria, apparently there were some concerns raised by drivers. So the FIA said they get a lot sort of harder and harsher in terms of how they penalise blue flags and this was I think the first case of it of it really coming out and yeah we saw that Perez I mean he was pretty unhappy about the penalty after the race and said that he didn't think it was fair um, but uh, Massey said that he actually had a, a number of team managers ring him up after the race and say that they were glad to see uh, drivers being penalised for not following the rules so I think that's maybe a sign of things to come in terms of the FIA's uh, policing of that yeah, I think it's it's one of these situations where if you're watching it on TV, it seems a little bit unfair because Sky showed a replay of of Lewis fairly breezing past Perez at turn one. And if you saw that, you'd think it's an open shut case. He didn't make it difficult for him. But actually, you know, the FIA would argue that Perez was first shown a blue flag at turn six on the previous lap and he had held Lewis up for all the corners in between. So the fact that he then didn't make it difficult in turn one is immaterial. He'd been holding him up for all the preceding corners since turn six on the previous lap. So it was perfectly fair. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I didn't buy Perez's explanation at all, considering how far before then he had been shown 
the first blue flag. He was like, well, it would have slowed Lewis down if I got Anderson. No, 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 hang on a minute. You, you, you waited so long. There was there was so many so much opportunity to let him by. So yeah, I can I can reveal now that Lance Stroll is indeed ahead in the driver ratings for the racing point drivers. Um, but yeah, as you say, Jake, I thought that was a, a commendable race drive from Stroll. Jake, staying with you because I've commissioned you to summarise this for a, a little bit, a little article in Autosport magazine this week. How did Carlos Sainz get on in the race and how did he earn his very excellent sixth place? We had a sort of weirder strategy in the ro- uh, the rest. He did a soft, soft, medium strategy and that gave him quite a lot of pace at the start of the race. Um, you know, solid start, stayed in seventh um, and then that became sixth once. Uh, Alex Albon made quite an early stop for his uh, beleaguered hard tyres, which he was very, very miserable on, it seemed. Um and then Science just sort of, you know, he was battling throughout the day. He was battling with racing points. He was battling with various drivers across the field. I think Charles Leclerc got past him at one point prior to his failure. Uh, Science was giving him a, you know, a bit of a hard time before that anyway. Um, and then when he got onto the mediums, just kept his head above the parapet. Didn't let himself get drawn into various midfield scraps or whatever. Managed to overcome Vettel towards the end of the race as Vettel was flagging. Um, so science just I think it's part partly down to that that early soft soft pair of stints that was a, a bit of a left field maneuver by McLaren to get him onto that but I think it really worked because he had that pace at the start of the race I was very surprised surprised by that strategy because I mean obviously you know it's Barcelona and some people feel they have to sort of throw stuff at the wall and see if it sticks to try and get get the go the, the go ahead um but but to do soft, soft, medium, when everyone thought the soft was the unfavourable tyre, I thought that was exceedingly left field. I wasn't sure, and unfortunately because I was attending other press conferences, I, I wasn't able to go to the McLaren one and the Christian Horner thing got cancelled. So we, we weren't really able to square the circle about what on earth Red Bull were thinking in putting Albon on um, the, the hard tyre so early. Uh, and also, I'm I'm still not quite square in my head about how much the science strategy was preordained and how much of it was a reaction to seeing what happened with Albon and where where that hard tyre strategy had consigned him to, and and whether they were thinking this being Barcelona, do we do we aim for track position or do we put our driver on tyres that enables them, him to overtake and what we saw with that strategy was that it did leave sites with quite a bit of work to do to get through traffic but every time he nailed it really quickly and he made the best use of those tyres to, to get through um, I've got he crops up in my notebook all the time making passing manoeuvres through this race um, so it, it clearly worked very well, but at the end of the day, it was a net gain of what one place. So he wasn't the only driver on this grid who had to go through an awful lot of pain just to gain one or two places. I think the only person who really, really gained through an off-the-wall strategy was Sebastian Vettel. And even he uh, would probably admit that it came about through happy accident rather than through competent planning. Indeed. Well, just just before we come on to talk about Vettel, worth noting that Pirelli had actually said uh, after Friday practice that the two-stopper using two softs would was actually the fastest way of doing it. But what was interesting was they said it would be best to do it soft at the start, then mediums, then soft, which obviously McLaren didn't do. So it was interesting to see them to see them go that way. And, and again, just again touching on Alex Albon, what what was so interesting about you know why they brought him in and particularly why they put him put him onto the hards was because he came out in just all all this traffic. He, he automatically, you say, God, has gave him such a hard job to do and it was just a bit like there's so many questions about why they did that which is a bit bizarre and he, he was driving as if he was he really was on roller skates or on ice skates it, it was that car just looked so unfriendly he couldn't put the throttle down at any point until he had straight road ahead of him so and, and that was when the tyres were, 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 were fresh on so I, I just couldn't understand what they thought they were going to extract from that it looked like they'd made life very very difficult for him it's kind of a knock-on effect almost of the current global situation that we have ourselves in is that um everybody defers now to pirelli on what allocations you can bring teams used to be able to choose which tires they wanted to bring to each race um, but pirelli has created this one size fits all you know allocation of tires um but obviously some teams like the mediums more, sometimes like the softs more, you know, you want to tailor it to your car. But unfortunately, 
you can't do that. Um, and as, as I understand it, Albon only had one set of mediums left for the race. And so he was kind of strong-armed almost into going onto that hard tyre at some point. Um, maybe maybe it could have worked out if there wasn't all that traffic, as Cod has mentioned. But he was just... He came out of the pits. He was amongst uh, Ocon and Hasses and people he wasn't even racing in that race. And it was just... Yeah, it, it kind of... Red Bull was kind of hoisted on their own petard in that particular side of the garage. Luke, last night you and I spoke about Sebastian Vettel and about how it was another disappointing, pretty woeful qualifying performance as he was knocked out in Q2. But as Jake said, took the unfancied, rather unthinkable at one point strategy and made a one-stopper work to, to leap into the points. But again, there was a radio message uh, exchange between Vettel and his engineer where it just sounded like it just sounded like this divorce that they're going through over the 2020 season is getting more and more bitter. But as I understand it, the team and Vettel moved sort of they downplay that in the press conference you attended after the race. Massive credit has to be given to Sebastian Vettel for his drive today, because although uh, we know that F1 sort of driver of the day uh, competition can sometimes be a little bit skewed and be a popularity contest, I thought Vettel for my liking at least, was was fantastic. And I know in the driver ratings, he will get docked for his qualifying, but I thought in the race, he was he was excellent and his time management was fantastic. Um, he, would, he was on course to finish 12th at one point. Like He lost a place to Daniel Kvyat after the first stint, um, but then we saw Leclerc retire and then went for this risky one-stop strategy, making the soft tyres last 36 laps, which is just crazy. But, but he made it work. But again, it wasn't like... That wasn't planned at all. Um, and he kept talking to the, the pit wall saying, like, what do we want to do? What are we doing? And uh, he started to push on the soft tyres um, as he was sort of nearing what he thought would be the end of that stint, only for them to come back three laps later and say, oh, what do you think about going to the end of the race? And Vettel said an expletive and was like, look, I asked you about this. Like, what, what are we doing? And then actually had to go back to his engineer and say, look, tell me what lap times I, I need to be aiming for. What are we doing? Do the maths. And... Yeah, it was pretty much like he was kind of leading the team into sort of saying, look, well, you need to work this out. Like, that is your job. And then I asked him and team principal Mattia Bonotto after the race and said, look, well, do you guys need to review this? Do you need to plan it better, work out what you're doing with your strategies? And, uh, and Vettel said, he said, no. He said, like, it's very easy sort of for you to say from the outside because you only get snippets of radio calls what is actually going back and forth. He said, but it's good that we kind of talk about this and that we sort of have this discussion. And that was echoed by Mattia Bonotto as well. But then you actually sort of go back and after the race, the actual proper audio files do come out and emerge on the internet and you listen to it and it's just like it was it was chaos. Like they didn't know what was going on. It, it was really, really poor. And I think that is something that, again, it does point to this, as you say, this messy divorce that's going on between Vettel and Ferrari right now. Like it doesn't show any signs of, of guessing any better. And as much as all parties may say, no, everything's fine and like we're getting on well and it's all cool. I mean, it's the second race in a row where Vettel has clearly not had any confidence in Ferrari's strategy and been left pretty much in the dark about what they're doing. And they fluked to seventh place really today, thanks to Sebastian Vettel being brilliant with his tyre management. And the team was asked after the race, like, well, is tyre management like the only saving grace of the SF1000 car, the only thing it's good at? And Bonotto was like, no, it's not good at that, but the drivers are, thankfully. And I think that's why full credit must go to Vettel for his performance in terms of the radio calls, I, I think Ferrari've got to sort it out because it's just it just looks amateurish, really, to have a driver sort of telling the team and not in kind of a guiding way like Lewis Hamilton was with Merck, but actually sort of saying, like, look, go and find me the numbers. They should be doing that. It's so basic. So, yeah, work to do. Charles Leclerc failed to finish the race. An electrical issue rather put the anchors on his car as the, the engine just cut out, spun him around at the final corner. And then it's interesting, it's almost like he was expecting to actually get out of the car because he loosened his seatbelts uh, and then did get it going again. The team, you know, carried on touring back to the pits and then he eventually he eventually retires after they'd uh, had a little bit of look at, at everything. But uh, but yeah, he was he was on for a, you know battling in with uh, with the McLarens, as Jake said earlier. And uh, they were very, very close to calling the safety car out for that as well. As you say, he spun around on the curb and loosened his seat belts and everything, thinking that that was his race done. The FIA were very close to calling the safety car. And then the engine burst back into life. And he was like, oh, OK, I better get going. So uh, trundled around with his seat belts loose before pitting. Um, but yeah, Ferrari then found they couldn't 
get the engine going and that that was that was it for his race but uh yeah quite quite a strange end to his race there a certain tune went through my head because uh, you know do you remember when we all used to sit in an office together and work together and uh, every so often on a monday um autosports deputy editor would would whistle a tune uh and the the tune would actually be the riff from a song by Sparks, the second track from the album Kimono My House, which is called Amateur Hour. And that was the riff that went through my head as I was listening to all this nonsense unfolding on the uh, Ferrari team radio and this completely dysfunctional relationship between team and driver with him saying to them, what speed do I need to go on these tyres to make them last? And then not responding to him. And then them after a while going... Oh, hang on! Oh, yeah, we've got two drivers in this race. Uh, can you make uh, can you can you make a one stop strategy work? And him naturally saying, "Well, you know, we spoke about this a while ago." So I won't whistle for you, but just imagine I'm whistling the tune to Amateur Hour. I would add that I don't know either that song or that artist or that album. Straight after um, this town ain't big enough for the both of us, which is one of the hits they're best known for. No. You had me. At, well, you had me at. Remember when we used to work in the office? And you lost me. You lost me as that anecdote went all, on. All you have to, all you have to Google is Sparks Amateur Hour, and the the tune will come through your head. Well, I look forward to doing that later on. Yeah. But anyway, uh, also worth noting that Pierre Gasly had another great race after another great qualifying performance. But uh, but Cotter's coming back to you after I so after I so rudely took that away from you last time. Um, Renault, you just you just enjoy this, don't I you? I do. I I always enjoy having you on the podcast Codders it's not exhausting at all um Renault the Renault weekend with their with their new big boss in town pretty underwhelming we had Esteban Ocon I mean I know no no driver was ultimately blamed for the crash in FP3 you had Bayern Magnussen but it looked pretty embarrassing for Ocon at one point um and then yeah he got beaten by Kimi Räikkönen's Alfa Romeo in qualifying and the race yeah, he was, he was involved in a lot of battles, put in some good overtakes, but he again comes away with well short of the points. Daniel Ricciardo couldn't do enough on the one-stopper to get in the points as well. So what went wrong for Renault today? Classic case of you having to slog to gain uh, one or two positions, isn't it? And they, they just felt, you know, they, they weren't able to find pace in the car to get through to Q3. And then whatever they did, it just didn't look good, I think. Um, I can look through my notes. Esteban said, you know, I had a lot of great battles today. You look back on these good fights, but they're only good fights if you're scrapping for points. It doesn't really count for anything if you're going for 13th place. So he had to fight very hard to move forward two places from where he qualified on the grid. So very tricky. He did very well. I thought his overtake on Raikkonen was spectacular. Raikkonen, you could argue, was out of position. Um, It's a problem they have. And he said that there are investigations ongoing within Renault about where the pace deficit that um, Ocon has has had compared with Ricardo and where it comes from. There's a sp- suspicion that maybe there's the the engine, the power unit that he's been running for the past few races is coming to the end of its life. It's not producing as much power. So for the next Grand Prix at Spa-Francorchamps, he's going to have a new power unit, new gearbox. There's going to be various other new things added in the hope that they can um, overcome this deficit just inside the garage. So this is a problem they're fighting. These are cars that finished outside the top 10 today, let's let's not forget. So they're fighting their own internal battle just to get those two cars closest to, closer together. Uh, whether they can get within the top 10, it's pretty tricky. Um, Daniel Ricciardo said yesterday that um, he didn't feel any additional pressure with having the Renault big boss there. But on the other hand, he had assured him that um, both cars would get through to Q3. And to be fair to them, they did think that their pace would be good enough to get through to Q3. They just didn't improve enough between practice and qualifying, and and everyone else did, particularly the Alfa Romeo of Raikkonen. So I I would say it's a combination of an outlier performance by by Raikkonen doing a very good job this weekend, and, and also Renault just kind of... just it not really happening for them and, and I would say that their their race strategy of trying to go long on the first set of tyres is is a little bit of a hoary old cliche and lots of people did lots of different strategies and, and they took the most obvious one and it netted one or two places for each driver but it didn't really do the business they wanted. 
Indeed, well, we, we mentioned Kimi Raikkonen. I can reveal that he's one of three candidates for a 10 out of 10. I suspect it may get whittled down to two, but he certainly he certainly went in well in there. It was brilliant in uh, in Q1 to get the Alpha out of uh, out into Q2 for the first time in 2020. But there was one moment in the race, which I want to come on to sort of discuss as our last point of the race that was pretty, that's pretty dodgy, let's face it, as Kimi Raikkonen blasted by Roman Grosjean as their strategies were sort of offset. Raikkonen on a two-stopper, it looked like the Haas was trying the one-stopper that Grosjean ultimately ruins by having his half spin at the turn seven eight chicane um yeah jake what did you what did you make of that when you suddenly saw it flash up for that grosjean again with a bit of a late defense at a very high speed moment and making him absolutely furious over the radio it was just it was clear that raikkonen was going to pass him um he was you know bombing down that straight he had the drs he had the toe and he was down the inside of grosjean and i don't know if grosjean doesn't look at, like I don't know if he I assume he's done a driving test at some point in his life and he just forgot forgot to look in his mirrors he's like oh oh there's my mirrors oh there's someone there oh I better defend it um it's always you know too late as you know as Martin Brundle might say a day late and a dollar short um and every single time yeah he does this and he did it at Silverstone in the first in the British Grand Prix and you know he was he was uh given read the riot act um, but he just it doesn't seem to learn from it um, and you know you could have a huge metaphysical debate about Roman Grosjean's career and whether he does learn from these things or not but you know he's in a position now where he's a team that's struggling um, he's struggling a little bit Haas needs some new blood in that team to go on making mistakes like that it's not going to help his cause. Raikkonen was very angry over the radio and he was right to be um, because if Grosjean had moved over, you know, half a metre more, then that was going to be a massive crash. So Raikkonen was a lucky, lucky boy that Grosjean managed to check up just in time. Um, So I think, I think it was really stupid. It was indeed. And then it didn't end there for Grosjean. He got clattered into by Giovinazzi, which was investigated after the race. And the steward said that Giovinazzi was actually so far alongside, he'd earned the right to some space. So sort of coming down on Grosjean there, even though no action was taken for the for the incident, it damaged Grosjean's car. That was the only thing that really threatened Hamilton's win. Hamilton himself said that after the race as he ran over the debris coming through turn two. But then, yeah, that late spin um, cost uh, Grosjean had to have an extra stop and he came home last. Um, Jake, I'm just going to note very quickly, it's quite bold of you to have raised a driving test um, joke there because I uh, I happen to know you didn't pass first time which I did at statistically the hardest pace to, to pass first time in Wait, the country, are we playing we, we playing guess yeah. how many driving tests it took me uh, yeah I know I certainly know it's more than more than two uh, I passed on my fifth attempt oh I didn't think it was that bad <laughs> what I, I would tell the story but I feel like it's another story for another podcast let's end by looking forward to the next race at Spa in two weeks time um, Luke I think it's going to be a pretty newsworthy one because of all the talk that's happening with uh, the potential clampdown on qualifying engine modes um, Lewis Hamilton and Mercedes seem pretty unconcerned but I don't think this is going to go away uh, certainly in terms of in terms of them being asked about it no, definitely not. Uh, this is something that emerged earlier this week that uh, we're going to yeah, have it so that the teams have to run the same engine mode for qualifying and the race. Obviously, they normally have these party modes that they'll put in for the, the very closing stages of qualifying, really get every last ounce of... Uh, of, of um, ounce of... Ounce doesn't make sense. I don't know what I'm saying. Um, really get every last tenth out of the car and, and maximise the potential in it. Um and yeah, that, that's going to be done away with. Uh, and it's kind of raised questions about, well, will this sort of bring Mercedes closer? And actually everyone said, well, no, it might have the opposite effects. And uh, Lewis Hamilton said it won't have the effect that they think it will. Uh, Toto Wolff was asked about it today. And he said that for every five laps of uh, that sort of extra mode that you can run in qualifying, he said that amounts to 25 laps of added pace in the race, which is quite a, a daunting prospect, I think, for Mercedes rivals. So, uh, yeah, I think that's going to definitely be a, a big talking point. Um, Michael Massey was asked about it today and he said the FIA are very confident they'll be able to impose it and really sort of crack down on it from Spa onwards we'll have to see what the impact is but I think there's a certain level of skepticism as uh, Jake and I discussed on the the Friday podcast as well that will this actually have any kind of side effect or is it kind of a bit of a, a pointless ruling that will only exacerbate the issues 
Indeed. Well, we look forward to the Belgian Grand Prix in two weeks. I should be there on the ground, assuming all goes well with my various coronavirus tests. Um, but I am aiming to run the track. I'm trying to keep up my oh. uh, my my streak of uh, running at every race where I've seen proper racing or, or, or testing action in the case of the Barcelona track back in February. Um, so, Codders, I just wondered if you had any pointers on uh, on what's the best approach for running a lap of Spa. I've never run a lap of Spa. I've cycled a lap of Spa. Pace yourself up Radion because it is quite steep. So um, two of my three bicycles I've I've ridden around Spa, my mountain bike and my road bike. And both of them, I, I find that the key is to gain some momentum on the run down to Eau Rouge and then attempt to sustain it on that initial ramp. But all I would say is that Although you have that initial ramp as you go up to Radion, uh, all it does is ease off and you've got all the rest of that hill to go up. So you, you've, it, it's really, really brutal. And the, it, it was quite telling, actually, that as I was cycling around the circuit, um, I was finding other people, including um, Renault's Alan Permain, running it the other way because they view it as being easier if you run it the wrong way around. So I ran Spa twice last year, once at the WEC race and once at the, the Formula One race. And Eau Rouge and Radion, I, I can't explain what that does to your knees because it is just not pleasant at all. Uh, and then as Codders says... Is it on a need-to-know basis? Yeah, very. I'd expect that kind of humour from JBL. Come on, Codders, you're better than I that. I enjoyed that. He's really not, he's <laughs> really not. not better than that. <laughs> I'm no, not. He's not. It's no, true. He's not. But it is because you, you get to the top of the hill and you're like, oh, thank God I'm done. And then literally you've got like another kilometre of straight basically to get through. And then, and then it's quite nice. Like the second sector, like it is pretty much all downhill. But the most crushing part is when you're sort of halfway through uh, Puon, and you look up, and it's a long way. You look up, and you can see the start finish straight in the pit buildings, and you're just like, I've got to go all the way up there because as much as it's downhill, you get to the bottom of the hill, sort of uh, Stavolo, and then beginning that run to Blanchimont, and it's just uphill again. And you're just like, oh god. Um, and then even the final chicane, that's uphill as well. And yeah, it's. It's painful, but it is so worth it. So you will enjoy that. On a bicycle, I would characterise that section as a false flat. So I would say that for, if, if you're a runner, then maybe running it the wrong way around works because you've got an, that initial section, which is sort of slightly downhill. And then you've got a very, very long, gentle uphill to, to go through or moderately gentle uphill to go through. And then obviously the whole section down to Radion and Eau Rouge becomes a very steep downhill and then you've just got a, a, a fairly gentle-ish uphill to go to, to La Source. Whereas on a bicycle, you all you need to do is to be in the right gear for speed and also to pedal in the cadence of any Stock Aitken and Waterman hit from the 1980s and that will see you all the way up the hill. I don't know what those words meant. Oh, come on, you must know the Stock Aitken and Waterman hits from the 1980s. All those records were the same cadence because basically they were all stamped from the same mark. They just farted out hit after hit uh, that was the same piece of music. So you just have it on your mental jukebox and it takes you all the way up the hill. So try it. Luke's looking at me as if I'm an absolute nutcase. No, I'm looking at Alex's face and just the amusement. I mean, I'll, I'll be thinking, honest. When I asked that question about the the run, I thought I was I, I didn't think we'd get to this, but but here we are. What to Carly Minogue? Quite, quite. But here we are. Anyway, that's uh, very enjoyable. Thank you for all your tips. I shall let you know uh, if uh, if they come in handy. But there we go. We see what, what happens when we get to when we get to Spa in two weeks' time. So, well, you know, in your imagination, there is no complication. Clearly, you know, just just try it, Alex. Clearly, indeed. Right. Well, thanks to the three of you for coming on the podcast tonight, and thanks to everybody for listening along. Now, just before we go, we'd like to remind you that the latest issue of Autosport Magazine came out on Thursday and is available on the supermarket shelves and in newsagents as well as on the doormats of subscribers. There'll be a new issue of the magazine for you to pick up every Thursday, packed full of news, analysis and the usual stunning photography. And of course, if you want unlimited access to Autosport from the comfort of your home, visit autosport.com slash plus to find out how to subscribe to our digital package. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Autosport Podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com slash Trilo Music.
told you I could do pump out lots of stock Ekin and Waterman hits. Um, the um, the Hazel Dean things maybe not so much, but um, yeah, like I said, you know, it's, it's the perfect cadence for cycling up a hill, provided you're in the right gear. Just it's it's literally it's like this. You imagine your feet going. I know it doesn't really work on radio, but they're, they're sort of going like that. Kind of, you know, I, I don't envy you, Alex, running around. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. The, is it morning yet, deal. How about now? Or now? Because morning time is McDonald's breakfast time. And that's the best time of all the times. Wake up with a little splash of sweetness. Get any size iced coffee from caramel to hazelnut to French vanilla for just 99 cents until 11 a.m. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Social Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.